Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers. And for anyone else who loves the Hebrew Scriptures. I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. We're both preachers who love the Old Testament, and we are Hebrew Bible PhD students at Emory University. Where I'm now quasi-officially done with coursework for life. Yay! That's right. You just turned in your last final of the semester. Wait, is that quasi-official? Yeah, I, st- I still have the one little Ugaritic class to pick up in the fall. Ah, uh, well, that, uh, yeah, in my book, that counts as done. If you are looking for some completed task euphoria for your sermon prep, you have come to the right place. We have a special treat for you this week, a full-length Irish wolfhound of an episode as we dive into 2 Kings 5. That's right. Today, we're pleased to welcome Justin Reed to first reading. Justin is Assistant Professor of Old Testament and Hebrew Bible at Louisville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, my own alma mater, by the way. He did his doctoral work at Princeton Seminary with a research focus on Noah's curse in Genesis 9 in conversation with critical race theory. He's also an ordained reverend in the Baptist Church. If you'd like to interact more with Justin's work, check out his chapter called How, How Is This Just?, in an edited volume called Noah as Anti-Hero, edited by Rhonda Burnett Bletch and John Morgan. We'll put a link to that on our website. Justin Reed, welcome to First Reading. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. We're glad to have you. Now, first things first, since you're still relatively new to Louisville, I have to know, did you participate in uh, Derby Day activities this year? <laughs> I did. Uh, this was my first... Uh derby and uh, my wife is the one that really got me to actually do anything yeah uh, but i didn't realize how much of a marathon it was it's a two-minute race but the activities take days <laughs> yeah no kidding so, so yeah we actually uh both fell asleep during the race because <laughs> of the stuff we did in the morning I hear so you. we missed the actual race <laughs> <laughs> I want to know what kind of hat did your wife have, or did she do a fascinator? She did a fascinator, which I'd never heard of until a couple weeks ago. Okay, okay. <laughs> hey, Justin, how did how did you uh, decide to get involved in this whole biblical studies thing as a as a profession? What was the hook for you? Yeah, so it wasn't until college that I first read a book of the Bible, and the reason I did it is because. Uh, I heard a sermon by a pastor named Ray Vanderland, who um, in this sermon, he talked about discipleship. He talked about how differently it could be understood from a Jewish perspective um, in contrast to the ways we've treated it and the things we thought about it. And there were so many new ideas, but the one that really got me into biblical studies was this idea that uh, on the one hand, um, Jesus's audience and the writers of the Gospels were all so immersed in the Hebrew Bible that in order for anyone to understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus, there's this expectation that you really know these texts well. And so uh, he talked about, you know, this is the only Bible that Jesus and his followers had. They didn't think they were writing the Bible yeah. mm-hmm. when they were writing the New Testament. And so <laughs> that's really what got me started. It was great that... Uh, my reading of the Bible really started in college because I was in an environment where uh, I started taking classes and was able to interact with the biblical text in a way that fit with what I feel is intellectual integrity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I remember that moment too. I don't know who said it. I think I was in college or close to college age when someone said, you know, that the Old Testament was Jesus's Bible, right? And it was just for me, yeah. like, just kind of mind blowing. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like, well, geez, I better be reading this thing then, you know? Yeah. Well, thanks for that little insight into your world. That was great. Thank you. Why don't we uh, Why don't we dive into the text for today? Sure. Justin, would you be willing to read? Uh, 2 Kings 5, the lectionary text in English for us? Sure. Uh, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man and in high favor with his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man, though a mighty warrior, suffered from leprosy, skin disease, something. Now the Arameans on one of their raids had taken a young girl captive from the land of Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his skin disease. So Naaman went in and told his lord just what the girl from the land of Israel had said. And the king of Aram said, Go then, and I will send along a letter to the king of Israel. He went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of garments. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you my servant Naaman, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to give death or life, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his skin disease? Just look and see how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me, that he may learn that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and halted at the entrance of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go. Wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became angry and went away, saying, I thought that for me he would surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and would wave his hand over the spot and cure the skin disease. Are not Abana and Pharpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? He turned and went away in a rage. But his servants approached him and said to him, Father, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? How much more when all he said to you was wash and be clean? So he went down and immersed himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. His flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. He came and stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Please accept a present from your servant. So uh, before we even ask any questions, my initial uh, reaction is as soon as I started reading, I started thinking about the ways I would translate differently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And 
for those people who who are working with Hebrew um, in preparing for sermons, uh, there is something refreshing about being able to translate the text that allows you to take something that uh, perhaps because of the lectionary you feel like you've exhausted the things that you care about in the the kind of the um, the plot of mm-hmm. the story, mm-hmm. and you can dig your heels in the ground in something else. Um, because there's so many things that are standards of translation that are just treated normal that um, you can find different reasons for saying, ah, we should really push back at this, and this can be the type of message that would be valuable for um, a congregation to hear. Yeah. What are a couple things that stood out to you in that regard? Well, um, the name of God is always something interesting in uh, these texts. So uh, the convention in your English translations is to write, uh, in the vast majority of English translations, is to write uh, all caps LORD every time that the name of God is presented in the Hebrew. Uh, When you see LORD in your English translation, you know, uh, in all caps, you know that in your Hebrew you have yod He vav He which is a personal name the same way that Justin is my personal name, but man is what I am, mm-hmm. or human is what I am, right? So uh, the personal name of God is different than the category of being God. Well, it's been a tradition from Judaism to not vocalize the name of God. I res- respect that tradition, and I don't vocalize it, uh, nor do I write it with vowels, Um out of respect for for others, out of reverence for the name of God, a uh, choice to not uh, use God's name in ways that uh, could be disrespectful to others. Mm-hmm. But how how we deal with it other than not saying the name of God, there's so many diverse options, and the choice to use Lord carries a lot of connotations behind it. Mm-hmm. So in our Bibles, Lord is the same word that's used uh, in this hierarchy where you can find texts where uh, Lord is the enslaver, the slave master. Mm-hmm. That's right. In the book of Exodus, it's it's significant that the people are, uh, the word for to enslave uh, or to, to work as an enslaved person, avad, um, is, is the problem with the status of the Hebrew people at Exodus. And then God's going to free them from that problem, but then they will, and our translations might say worship, but it's the same word, they will avad for the Lord now. And when you get to Exodus 21, and uh, after the Ten Commandments, the Lord starts giving these other commands for the people to follow. It starts with how to enslave people. And you see that word that's translated Lord, Adonai, Mm -hmm. um, used for uh, the master of an enslaved person. Um, and so it's kind of, not kind of, it is problematic <laughs> mm-hmm. that what's normal for our translation of uh, God is the same language that we're using for enslavement. I like to use, to say Hashem, the name, um, but that's that you know that's somewhere where you can put your foot down, talk about the implications, and it really has nothing to do with this 
not nothing. It has little to do with the particulars of this <laughs> passage, but it's something that people can do if they have facility with Hebrew anytime uh, there's a text that they feel they've, they've, they've exhausted the things that they care about already. Um, a couple, I'm not going to actually go into these other ones like I did with, before, but a couple other things. Um, how do you handle names? Right? We have anglicized translations, um, except for usually the less common names. Mm-hmm. And uh, why do we do that? And what are the implications of pronouncing those things in such a way that uh, they're radically different from the way they sound in Hebrew? Um, how do we handle um, the translation wife if it's always the same word, woman? Um, when is somebody a wife? When is someone a woman? And is wife ever appropriate um, considering the difference between what they considered um, a man getting a woman and what we considered two consenting adults being married? Mm-hmm. Um, That's a great point. Leprosy is one of those things that I I started to say leprosy and I was like, well, at least for this one, I'm going to change it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Anything that has to do with uh, servant and enslavement, uh, you, you you do need to know Hebrew to know the different words that are behind it because there's several that are used. Mm-hmm. Um, in this passage for the little girl, it never calls her um, one of those uh, two common words for a female that's enslaved. But uh, this idea of slavery and, and uh, being able to figure out how you want to handle that in your translation and the things that you bring forward. Uh, that can be and often are masked in our English translations. Yeah, mm-hmm. those are great points. Is there other uh, sort of contextual things that might help us kind of land ourselves in this text as far as the uh, literary and historical context that we want to talk about? Sure. In terms of the literary context, Second Kings begins with this transition from Elijah to Elisha being the big hero that we're going to follow mm-hmm. through these stories. And so uh, I believe in 2 Kings 2 is where um, uh, Elijah goes up in that famous um, scene with the chariot of fire and uh, Elisha gets a double portion of uh, the, the juice, whatever Elijah's got <laughs> <laughs> that Elisha wants. The good stuff. Yeah, the good stuff. <laughs> and so... Um, through these uh, maybe first 10 chapters or so of Second Kings, we have uh, Elisha at work doing the things that um, the prophet does in, in the books of Kings, uh, which, in, well, first of all, these people aren't just called the prophet in these texts. They're also called the man of God, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, is interesting in terms of how it works, what it's supposed to mean. There's a weird pun about it where uh, early in the book of Second Kings where people come to the man of God and the man of God sets them on fire, kills them. Uh, and it's a play on words, Ish uh, Ish Elohim, man of God, and Ish Elohim, fire of God. Um, and he does it three times, and the, the third time the people are like, please just don't set us on fire. We want yeah, to talk yeah. to you. But uh, I, I think that play on words is trying to emphasize the power of this idea of the man of God and the miracles that are happening from the man of God. So these texts around this area have to do with, uh, one, 
a theme of the miraculous power of God that's that's going through these prophetic fi- figures, and also um, the idea of prophet as uh, speaking words that are fulfilled. Um, so uh, there's a Deuteronomistic. Is is that too technical to talk about? Deuteron- no, I think so. Deuteronomy is a very important book in the Hebrew Bible, and a lot of the ideology and beliefs and theology of Deuteronomy show up in other places. They're very influential in the Hebrew Bible, and you can notice them. Uh, so I think that's a little bit yeah. of what you're getting at there, right? Thank you, yeah. Rachel. And so one of those themes has to do with this idea that uh, God, when God works, uh, the prophet already told you what God's up to or what God's going to do. And so in these texts, you have uh, word and fulfillment, word and fulfillment. Um, with Elisha, sometimes it's word and partial fulfillment um, and eventual fulfillment. Um, it all points to a, a power beyond the prophet. That's right. Yeah. Well, and that power is is fronted right away at the beginning of the story in kind of a sideways way because we have the introduction to Naaman or Naaman in verse 1. And then when it describes why he's in such high favor with his king, it says, For through him the Lord, or Hashem, Adonai, God, had granted victory to Mm -hmm. Aram. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden it's like, what is God doing granting victory to Israel's enemy? Yeah. So um, this this is fascinating to me. So one thing uh, to keep in mind, if somebody were to look this up and they saw, uh, um, I believe it's Teshua here. If someone uh, were to see this, they might think, oh, my gosh, in my lexicon, it says this has to do with salvation. And Mm -hmm. uh, think of it in a spiritual sense. Um, This is a word that primarily has a physical, material sense of salvation. So this is Mm -hmm. salvation in terms of victory in, in battle. And then only secondarily, as a metaphor, do people come up with a salvation that is spiritual based on this word. Uh, So it says that Hashem is the source of uh, this favor through granting salvation to Aram, the the ethnic group, the nation, the people group, um, through Naaman. And to me, part of what's fascinating about that, so one, in terms of the context, the Arameans and the Israelites are in conflict at different places in the biblical text. Um, they have a complicated relationship. Uh, in terms of the immediate context, they are going to be in more of a real conflict with real war a few chapters later. In this chapter, it appears that there's some tension, but not the tension of a war. After all, um, the king of Israel says, when, when uh, the message comes to him, the king of Israel says, you're trying to provoke me, mm-hmm. as in you're mm-hmm. trying to start a conflict. So yeah. so uh, there's there's some tension that it could happen, but it's not really happening, even though at the borderlands, they're doing raids and yeah. taking captive people. So there's some mm-hmm. conflict that's hurting the most marginalized people, but there's not a full on war. Yeah, I was just going to say, it sounds like the relationship between Israel and Aram is somewhere between warring nations, as we would think of them, and your Thanksgiving table with all of your family there that you don't really agree with, right? It's somewhere along that continuum, yeah? Yes, and the fascinating thing with Genesis for me is that it presents 
uh, a chance to see that sort of thing where there's uh, that huge dichotomy between these are your siblings. Edom, uh, Esau, Edom is the sibling of Jacob. They're brothers, and yet they're bitter enemies elsewhere in the Bible. And there's the chance of murder. And Aram is Laban, who's representing Aram, is the cousin. Yeah, I guess cousin of uh, Jacob. And yet they're in conflict and there's, you know, the Mm -hmm. Thanksgiving (laughs) tension, I guess. You know, you celebrate with the ones you love and hopefully uh, it doesn't spiral out of control. Turn into murder. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, But in terms of uh, God working with the quote unquote foreigner, it's part of a bigger theme that that I find uh, very interesting in uh, the biblical text. In Amos, well, it, throughout the Bible, there's hints of this idea that uh, our narrow line of vision is what we see as a special relationship with Hashem, with this unique God. And nevertheless, there's these little places where it says, guess what? It looks like it's super special and super unique because this is your male. This is who I'm talking to. This is... The message that's intended for you. That doesn't mean that Hashem can't have this sort of relationship elsewhere. And so in Amos, at the beginning of Amos, the chosenness of God's people comes up as uh, something that you might think, oh man, God's going to have something special and good for God's people because they're chosen. But when God mentions it in chapter 3, God says, you know, I chose you from all the nations so that you'll be punished. So that so that you'll have a higher responsibility when you do the wrong thing. Yeah. And then it's like by, being the pastor's kid in it's being the pastor's kid in any congregation, right? Yeah. You're special because you get harder punishment when you mess yeah, up. Yeah, and you're going to be under the microscope. <laughs> yeah. And then by the end of the book of Amos, God goes on and says, "Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Kaftor, and the Arameans from Kir?" And the only account that we have is the, you know, Israelites from Egypt, this big exodus, super central to their faith. But then God's saying, yeah, I did the same thing with uh, the Philistines, who you think are your enemy. But I, you know, I had this big exodus with them and the um, Arameans. And so here uh, we have another hint of that same sort of relationship of God with uh, not just an individual, but an well, here it's an individual, but in Amos uh, 9, mm-hmm. it's a whole, that whole individual's national history, their ethnic identity is tied up with a relationship with Hashem, whether they recognize it or not. That's the message mm-hmm. that's coming to Amos. And so to me, that's yeah. a big, big point in, in, uh, in this first verse. And there's another one that comes up later when uh, Naaman recognizes Hashem. Which I think we said mm-hmm. was like right past the end of the lectionary. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's why we had yeah. to go to verse 15 because it's like the crucial verse that just gets sliced off. In a way that kind of bookends the whole story. So it's exactly. uh, it's fascinating that the lectionary decides to let that little yeah. bit go. So in that verse, uh, Naaman praises God, and it reminds me of these other non-Israelite figures that at crucial points in the biblical meta-narrative have uh, this special relationship with Hashem, the God of Israel, 
and sing praises to Hashem, the God of Israel. If you think back to uh, Genesis 14, Melchizedek, Melchizedek is a priest of the Most High God, king of, king of Salem and priest of the Most High God. And in that passage, after God works with Abraham to uh, secure a victory, Melchizedek praises God, talks about how great this God is, and um, breaks bread with Abraham, offers gifts to Abraham like Naaman does. Abraham refuses those gifts like like uh, Elisha refuses the gift from Naaman. And um, this is an example of one of those people who's got this special relationship with the God of Israel and is really showing it with their praises. And then in Exodus um, 18, we see the same sort of thing with uh, Moses's father-in-law. Yeah. You can call him Ruel, Jethro, Hobab, whatever name um, you see. I think in that particular text, he's named Jethro. He praises praises God recognizes how great God is. There is no God but this God. Has a lot of parallels with the Genesis 14 text. And again, we have the, it's this figure who's a priest of Midian, which is the region in which Moses first met, first came to know about the reality of Hashem. Mm-hmm. This is the God. This is where God uh, has this holy mountain where they, where, uh, they encountered Moses. Jethro is a priest of that place. Yeah. He's not Israelite, and he has this relationship and this praise for that God. And then later on, near the end of their being in the wilderness, mm-hmm. uh, we have uh, Balaam, Balaam, who is not, not a priest like Melchizedek or mm-hmm. Jethro, but this time a prophet. Mm-hmm. And Balaam's a prophet mm-hmm. that is not Israelite, mm-hmm. but is a prophet for the God of Israel. Yeah. And so you have these cases where the non-Israelites have these particular non-Israelite figures of prominence have a relationship with the God that is unique, so to speak, to Israel. Rhetorically, it seems like the intent of these authors is to uh, criticize Israel. How can you not recognize how great God is and these foreigners recognize it? Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's other directions that, that you can go with this, especially if you have uh, more pluralistic understanding of uh, God and Christianity and diversity and things like that. Well, and I think, too, it it brings up kind of that, uh, you know, we really like, so I'm I'm a Lutheran pastor, and so, you know, Genesis mm-hmm. 12 is like, it's like bread and butter for us Lutherans, and especially the promises and all that. But we focus so much on the first couple of promises, and we forget that the end is this point where God says, I will bless you so that all the families mm-hmm. of the world shall be blessed. Like, we forget yeah. kind of the ultimate intention of the blessing itself. Uh, we the the first Israelite that we meet in this particular passage is this girl who was taken captive, and who uh, has the the inside intel about the prophet who is in in uh, Samaria. Uh, what do we want to say about her and kind of her situation and how she what kind of role she plays in this story? In the biblical text in general, women are marginalized uh, and especially so when it comes to uh, those who are enslaved. One reaction 
has been for people to say, well, uh, this text, the Bible, is um, irredeemably sexist and patriarchal and should be rejected altogether. Uh, but in a podcast like this, where people are intending to preach the Bible, I imagine that's one extreme that they're not taking. <laughs> the other extreme, to me, uh, should be jettisoned as well. And that extreme is to uh, believe that uh, the Bible itself is uh, perfect when it comes to issues like sexism. Mm. And it's only our interpretations that have been problematic. And I think that the Bible reflects the culture and the time and the ideas of uh, its writers. And that includes um, biased ideas that are against the full humanity of women. And, and other people who are different from the author in all kinds of ways. Uh, so in between those two extremes, uh, people can center those texts that seem to be a counter-reading to uh, sexism and patriarchy. Um, and other people can, or the same people, can center uh, what they consider or what we consider to be the core meaning of the Bible. And these are some principles through which we can interpret all else and decide whether we're interpreting good or bad. Mm-hmm. Um, so with, with, with that in mind, when I look at this uh, young girl, I see that she's not named. Uh, I see that she's marginalized uh, in, in terms of the fact that she's more vulnerable in a time when they're not in actual war. She's more vulnerable to be taken. I, I say that part of what's important about the gospel to me is uh, centering my care on these sort of people. Mm-hmm. And so when I read this, um, I think if I were to preach this passage, I would probably put all my weight in this one area and just stick in here and think about what the implications are. Mm-hmm. So one thing is, um, what does it mean to, and this is a you know a preaching point people could talk about, what does it mean that she is in a state of risk while others seem to be um, not in the same sort of situation. Right. Uh, how does the status quo, the norm in our society, uh, still present a, a sense of unbalance, of continual vigilance about your situation for the people that are on the margins of society? Another thing to think about is uh, the king seems ignorant about the work of Elisha, the prophet. This young girl who's on the margins of society seems well-informed. Oh, great point. For the, for the king, it doesn't cross his mind that, oh yeah, they're coming here, send them to the prophet, the prophet will fix it. For her, without even being um, asked... She's thinking about this. Nice. Um, and so you could say, well, what does that say about how God works in the world or where God is working? Uh, what does it mean to be aligned with God? Um, does it say something about how uh, marginalized people deal with society in a different way than those who are um, privileged and comfortable? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, does it say something about our social location having to do with our ability to recognize the work of God that's already happening. Um, so those are some of the ways in which I could jump off from, from this. A huge thing for me is um, I'm very struck by her candid 
disclosure of unsolicited advice mm. that will benefit her captors. Yeah. Um, these are the people who are who are who who have her as an enslaved person. And so you ask, where does this come from? And uh, one way to think about it, uh, what is what makes this oppressed person value the well-being of their oppressors? Mm. Uh, does it come from a deep awareness of the full humanity of all people? Mm. So Alice Walker has a, a quote where, and I'm paraphrasing, she basically says, uh, we need to recognize that we don't have enemies, but merely confused adversaries who are ourselves in disguise. Oh, that's beautiful. Hmm. So being able to see her uh, looking out for the well-being of her own captor, is this because she has this super high awareness of the full humanity of everybody? Hmm. Or is it the opposite? Completely opposite reading uh, has to do with uh, what Malcolm X says about uh, enslaved people and uh, a sort of insanity where he says there's the difference between uh, what he calls a house Negro and a field Negro. And he says the house Negro is looking for the well-being of his enslaver, his master, saying, uh, oh, if master's sick, we're sick. If something bad's happening, oh, I hope it doesn't happen to us. I hope um, tragedy doesn't befall us. And these people, in Malcolm X's understanding, these are people who uh, deserve criticism for being oblivious to how... They're complicit in their own oppression. And then there's options other than those two extremes where there's uh, um, maybe she hopes that this will make a difference, being helpful to her oppressor. Uh, Maybe uh, Renita Weems talks about Hagar's relationship with Sarah is a woman in a patriarchal society, but she's got relative power over Hagar Mm -hmm. in Exodus 16, and yet she oppresses, oppresses Hagar. And Renita Weems, uh, in a classic article or chapter back in the early 90s, writes about, well, what if these people recognize that they're sisters in the wilderness and they came together over that? Maybe that's the type of thing that this uh, enslaved girl is trying to do with her mistress. After all, that's who she talks to. Maybe they're trying to make a bond where they can help each other um, in spite of their differences of ethnicity and uh, status in society and find some comfort in one another. So there's all kinds of different directions that you can take this. And I think that's a, a, a responsible place to put your attention in this text. Definitely. What do we want to make of the uh, one of the one of the parts that was most fascinating to me in this text was the way that um, the the interaction between that ends up happening between Naaman and Elisha is kind of channeled through their kings, and it becomes mm-hmm. sort of this uh, international diplomacy type thing, and uh, that the the king of Israel seems to be um, he finds the whole thing unsettling. He tears his clothes. What what more do we want to say about kind of how that plays out in the narrative? The key thing behind the narrative has to do with a conflict over uh, proper allegiance to Hashem. So behind it all is, are we going to get it right when it comes to worshiping the right God? And in the pen of these authors from Judah, Judah separate from Israel at the time of this text, mm-hmm. or in the world of this text, in the pen of those authors, Israel messed that up. Israel didn't get it right. They didn't understand that the real point all has to do with worshiping 
Hashem, the right God. And so it's significant that what the king reacts to is, oh my gosh, I'm not God. I can't fix this. And that's what he's tearing his clothes about when what he really should be doing is, okay, you've given me this. Now I've got to go to Hashem to fix this. Yeah, and I think you see that too in kind of the, it's almost a humorous arc where the the young girl, the young Israeli girl says, I wish Master could go to the prophet. Uh, and so instead of going to the prophet, Naaman goes to the king of Aram. And the king of Aram, instead of sending him to the prophet, sends him to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel, instead of sending him to the prophet, tears his clothes. And finally, Elisha is like, okay, guys, let's listen I'm to here, her original yeah. words. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so it's almost this humorous, like, very powerful people running around like chickens with their heads cut off or something mm-hmm. like that. And then the the final end of that arc is where it, even though the little girl didn't mention Hashem, the God, that's where that arc is supposed to finally point yeah. to. And it does for Naaman. Yeah. In that yeah. at the end, he says, now I know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he struggles to get there, doesn't he? He, uh, mm-hmm. he, Elisha gives him a very simple instruction, and it's it's too simple, isn't it? Yeah, I wasn't completely sure of what to to make of that. Besides the big contrast between um, the the assumption that your wealth and the you know magnitude of your actions are the big thing that matters versus the pervasiveness with which Hashem is acting in all kinds of ways, mm-hmm. right? Including things that are small and seemingly ordinary. Mm-hmm. Um, same sort of contrast that Elijah saw when Elijah was trying to go to the mountain and meet God. Yeah. And it's like, big event. There's fire, there's hurricanes, there's or, or, or storm, whatever. Big events. Earthquake, yeah. Earthquake. But no, that's that's not where he meets God. God's in this cold, the mama, whatever, it's this tiny, silent voice, whatever this thing is, mm-hmm. it's the opposite. Yeah. And that's the same sort of thing that's happening with uh, Naaman here. He's looking for God in the big, miraculous activity, and he's like, go take a bath. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Seven times. <laughs> And once again, it's uh, the Avadim, his servants, who convince mm-hmm. him finally to follow this. There's there's this whole theme throughout this whole text that seems to be between those who are supposed to be powerless, like you mentioned, with the people on the margins having different insights or knowing things that the people in power don't, um, and then trying to trying to encourage the powerful people to. I don't know what open their eyes to obey to look at Hashem anything. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't have said it better, Rachel. What makes that so interesting to me too is at the end of verse 15, what uh, what Naaman finally identifies as is a servant, which is the whole mm-hmm. contrast through the whole thing is that uh, you have these servants telling the powerful people, and then it's almost like Naaman not only recognizes that it is. God, who is the unique God, but that he, Naaman, is is a servant as well. Mm-hmm. So it's a, a humbling of his own status uh, that goes part and parcel with the ability to recognize Hashem and the work of God. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, let's move at this point to preaching pitfalls, places where preachers might get uh, tripped up if they're if they're not careful. Tim, do you have anything for us? Well, there's a couple. One that we have already talked about a bit is that um, 
in the story, the situation of the Israelite girl is there's not a lot made of it. And it would be tempting for preachers as well to sort of gloss over her situation. Uh, but like Justin was saying before, it's it's helpful and important, really, to call attention to that and to um, to, to not gloss over her situation. Mm-hmm. The other big one, of course, is that uh, the lectionary itself, the reading, stops at the end of verse 14, but the story doesn't. <laughs> and so, as we often do we would really recommend to preachers that you uh, follow the the arc of the biblical story itself rather than the confines of the lectionary and really take this to the the end of that arc where Naaman is able to confess the uh, uniqueness of Israel's God. That seems to be where the story is headed, and that should be a part of our sermons about this text. I think the only thing I have to build on that is that uh, this is one of those stories that people might be familiar with but have no clue where it shows up in the biblical narrative or how it contributes to that larger narrative. So if you can, come up with a way in 30 quick seconds to orient them to where they are in the biblical story and how this contributes to the larger story itself. Um, That kind of tactic will help it not feel so just out of the blue and will help people engage with the whole story of the Hebrew Bible. As you were talking about uh, context um, as being a helpful thing for uh, preaching this text, uh, one thing that comes to mind about a a pitfall is uh, sometimes when I hear preachers bring up the context for some of these unfamiliar narratives, preachers will bring up too much of what they researched. Mm-hmm. And I say too much in the sense that um, if you start by just saying, okay, this is who the Arameans are. Um, this is the situation at that time. This is the historical background. People don't know what to hold on to from what you're saying. And if it's all new, uh, most of it is going to be dropped. Yeah. And so uh, when I hear the best sermons, in my opinion, in terms of bringing in historical context, bringing in the literary context, uh, they do so alongside specific details in the story where they already have, where the pe- preacher already has determined that that context is necessary for understanding this detail. Nice. That way people have something to anchor it to. Um, in a way where if you just start with it, sometimes people get lost and say, okay, I don't understand the point, and they're just going to lose it. And then, and then I stop listening. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. How about uh, sermon angles? What do you got for us there, Tim? Yeah, I, th- I think that uh, as far as ways into this text as a sermon, uh, we've touched on a number of them, and I think mine uh, duplicate a little bit what Justin's already given us. One was, um, I was just fascinated by the way that in verse 11, Naaman had been expecting this big show uh, of a healing and instead got that uh, simple uh, simple advice. And I too was reminded of Elijah's experience in the cave. That And it seems like that's something that would connect with a lot of people in their own experience of this mysterious God. That often um, where we expect that if we are living faithfully as we understand that, 
we might expect to see God showing up in big, visible, um, spectacular ways in our lives. It's often that we find God in uh, the simple and quiet and unimpressive to outside observers uh, ways. And I think that that theme resonates with what's happening in this story. Tim, the message that you just brought forward um, makes me want to point out a couple things that uh, you might have noticed, but may, but we didn't really talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is the difference between who is uh, Gadol, great, big, and who is small, Katon or Katan. Mm-hmm. Um, and this being applied to the enslaved girl at the beginning, she's small. Whereas um, Naaman at the beginning is talked about as both uh, big and valiant yeah, um, and a, a warrior, mighty. But then by the end, as you mentioned, Rachel, um, he refers to himself as Avad, as small. And when he's restored, he's described as a little boy. Yeah. Right. Or his flesh is like that of a little a, a young a young boy like her like she is a young girl same sort same words there mm-hmm. except different gender um, and so that fits with this idea that uh, there's um, this contrast between you know expectation of God being great and in these big places but where God's actually recognized has to do with that humility and that smallness and so those are a couple of other points that can come into that sort of um, that sort of message. Definitely. And that that really dovetails into my sort of uh, other angle into this text, which is to talk about where power is in here and where in uh, the expectation is that power would reside with the kings and with the big generals. But in this story, the the power of God is in those marginalized places and in those marginal through those marginalized people in the little girl in a prophet, in the servants of the general. They're the ones that are the, become the channels of God's power in this text. Uh, in, and uh, in preaching about that, I think it's helpful to point out that it's uh, God's power is not always going to be available in this world through sort of the official channels, but that we can be looking for God's power to show up in unexpected places and, and to be channeled through unexpected people. And yeah. the more that we can attune our own attention to those places and those people, the more we're going to see God at work. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's a sermon I'd like to hear. <laughs> what, do, what do you think, Rachel? How would you preach this? Yeah, I think very similarly to what you guys have said, but with a couple of different angles. Um, I mentioned earlier that I wanted to, at the end of this text, after Naaman self-identifies as a servant, I wanted to go back to that young Israelite girl. Um, And if I were preaching, that's probably where I would end it. And I might do some imaginative work of wondering what her experience was like in speaking a wish to one of her captors, a female captor, having that wish go all the way up to the king of Aram and then reach the king of Israel and then cause this giant, massive retinue of people to leave her household. And what was it like as she waited to see what would happen when they all came back? And what was it like when she saw Naaman, when she saw Naaman for the first time with smooth skin and thought, I did that, you know, or Hashem did that, but I put that in motion. 
Um, so it's not only this idea that the people on the margins are the ones who have access to or can see more clearly that power of God, but perhaps that power ultimately empowers them as well. Um, and what was her experience like after that, knowing that her words through Hashem had power as well? Um, and if I were preaching this, I might bring in the, the Christ hymn in Philippians to talk about the power of Christ in giving up power. Um, and so that it is those who are humble and yet do deeds of power through love, just as the young servant girl did. Um, I think that's one way you could preach that this text as well. It's interesting to note in a in a calendar, this Sunday is coming right before July 4th. And depending on your setting, if you're in um, different settings, do uh, Memorial Day or July 4th commemoration stuff within worship itself. Um, and sometimes the pastor has more or less control over how that happens. Um, but here we have this military text right around this, this military holiday that we celebrate here in the United States. And yet what it's, what it's proclaiming, what it's pushing us towards is the recognition that ultimately military power is not what saves. It's not what delivers. It's not even necessarily the preferred way that God works, but instead through humility and through those who are willing to self-identify as servants. Um, this may sound a little odd, um, but I, I find a lot of veterans really... Um, identify actually with that message because when you ask people who are veterans what makes a good soldier they talk about things like putting yourself second and putting others first and self-sacrifice and humility so if you're worried at all about how you might preach this in a in a place which has very strong connections to the military i would talk to your veterans and talk to them about this text or just about their experience with what makes a good soldier and i think you might be surprised at what sort of sermon illustrations come out from that uh, justin it has been such a pleasure to talk with you thank you so much for coming on our podcast Thank you for inviting me. It, it has been great. It was a very fun experience. Good. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure. And dear listeners out there, if you're interested in uh, connecting with Justin's work, we'll make sure to post his information on our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. Until next time, I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. Happy preaching. We need to give credit here to Blue Dot Sessions for some additional music this week. And we have a big favor to ask you. First Reading is still in its startup phase. We need your help to broaden our reach. If you'd take two or three minutes right now to forward a link to this episode or to our website, to your network of preaching and Bible-loving friends, or go to iTunes and give us some stars and a brief positive review, those two things will help us exponentially grow our listenership and help make this podcast sustainable for the long run. Thanks for that, and have a great week.